Next hour on most of these the same frequencies. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious topic, the future. This is Cracking the Code with Sadir Ispahani. In this episode, a conversation with the original shark, Kevin Harrington. The inventor of the infomercial, pioneer of As Seen on TV, credits curiosity for his success. It was my curiosity that always put me in a position of seeing new things, new ideas, new excitement, and new opportunities. Advice from a mentor led Harrington to co-found the Entrepreneurs Organization. Zig Ziglar instilled in me a philosophy of you can get everything in life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. So at an early age, I found myself helping other people. Harrington believes business leaders can't just sit still riding on current success. You always do what you've always done. You'll always get what you've always gotten. You sometimes have to uh, think outside the box, take a little bit of risk, take some new opportunities, and not be afraid to try some, some new challenges. I always believe as a leader, it's important to be testing new things, new opportunities, and, and not to be closed-minded. Now your guide for cracking the code, Sudhir Ispahani. Thank you very much, Kevin. It's been an honor and, uh, you know, having uh, reviewed your very impressive background, you are definitely one of those uh, pioneers. And you know what they say about pioneers. They always carry arrows in their back. <laughs> I pull so, them out every now and then. <laughs> having you on as a guest is really important because of all your experiences and, and what you have to share with our audience. I'm launching this podcast with the intent to bring pioneering thought leaders like you to talk a little bit about where the future of disruptive technology is going and how leadership, economic, ethical and market trends are shaping out in our society and at the heart of all of it is how you lead with heart-first philosophies. Clearly your focus is around uh, people being first and making ensuring that they're always successful. Clearly you've tasted that success yourself. So, Kevin, I'm honored to have you on the show. To begin with, I would like to start, if you can give us a little background, a little bit about where you started with childhood, how that brought you to where you are today, if you can just sort of give us that journey a little bit and how yes. you were thrust into leadership. I go back to a very nice story about my background and upbringing. I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. And, and, you know, my father was entrepreneurial, but he started as a, as a bartender and then saved up enough money to open up his own bar, Harrington's Irish Pub. And so <laughs> uh, I was working in, when I was 11 years old, was actually working as much as a 40-hour week between bar backing and then they had food. So I was a busboy, dishwasher, assistant chef when the, the chef didn't show up, assisting my father cooking the food, right? So um, I got all aspects of it and enough to know that that was not an industry that I wanted to spend the rest of my life in. My father loved that business, but I was one of six kids by the time I was number four. So by the time they got to me, it was very difficult for a, you know, a bartender slash bar owner to raise in a nice way, you know, a whole bunch of kids. So I, when I came along, it was kind of like, okay, 
Kevin, you're going to have to pay for your own schooling, cars, clothes, everything. So from high school on, I was a very motivated young individual because I, I didn't have the same things many friends had. We we lived. My mother was very smart and she she wanted to live in a nice neighborhood. My father couldn't afford it. So we were in the cheapest house, literally in in a pretty good neighborhood because, you know, he was in transition into more successful entrepreneurship, hopefully. But make a long story short, you know, going to the nice schools and all of those things. I had two older sisters. And of course, the girls generally didn't have they didn't have to go make their money as much sometimes as like I came along. Okay, Kevin, you got to it's you got to pay your own way. So I I was motivated at a young age to want to be successful and and really control my own destiny. So at 15 years old, I started a driveway sealing business in Ohio. It was a great summer business. I was doing 10 jobs a week, you know, knocking on doors and cold calling. And then I wanted to do something when I got into college year round because driveway ceiling was only in the in the warm months. I started a heating and air conditioning company because that was year round heating and air conditioning. And so make a long story short, the um, bottom line is here I was getting all these things, you know, rolling and uh, it was very entrepreneurial. So my father, there's one thing he, he I consider him my mentor as he was pushing me to want to own my own business at a time when my mother was like, no, finish school and be a doctor or a lawyer. Well, I say that I had two older sisters, one married a doctor, one married a lawyer. So we got that out of the way in the family. I could then be the entrepreneur. So (laughs) my father would work literally an 80 hour week and he had his day off on Sunday. And I would look at him and beside his chair when he was watching TV and resting was this stack of, of work and like, magazines, newspapers, trade journals, Wall Street Journal. And so I said, Dad, why don't you take it easy? You know, you've got this pile of stuff. He said, Kev, he said, you always have to be on top of your industry. And we had, I coined the term curiosity overload. And that was, he wanted to know the latest food preparation techniques, the latest gadgets to roast chickens and, and cook food and sources of supply and and he, he would take me to the trade shows. And so I started at a young age understanding that, you know, even as an entrepreneur, if you work, you know, it, it, like my father would say, working a 40 hour job is like a part time job. Right. Because that's he he worked a lot of hours and instilled that in me. And I make a long story short, I started at that young age then in doing trade shows and going out and exploring. And so one day I was at the houseware show in Philadelphia. And I ran into this amazing guy that was pitching what was, I then found out to be called the Ginsu knife set and make a a long story short. It turned out to be a product that I could create an infomercial around so that we could then become this infomercial company. So that it was my curiosity that always put me in a position of seeing new things, new ideas, new excitement and new opportunities. And it was my my father that instilled that in me, and thank God, I, you know, I was had a great love in our family. The six kids to this day were still a very close knit family. Oh, my mother and father both passed away now. My father lived till he was ninety three years old, and literally twenty four hours before he passed away, 
he was telling he was giving me comments on one of my most recent infomercials and how I had missed the mark on a certain couple of techniques that I should have used in the show. And so God bless him. It was, you know, he went down to his final hours being my mentor. And it was an amazing relationship we had. What a background. Uh, and obviously you've had an amazing uh, career up until now, but adversity, uh, I'm a big believer that adversity teaches us a lot. What did you think you were going to be when you when you grew up? I mean, did you have this view that you wanted to be an entrepreneur all along? Clearly, you started early. When I was a youngster, I, it was funny. I, I was an, kind of athletic. I played baseball and football and, and you know, liked to stay in shape and all that. I, I envisioned being a fireman or, you know, something very uh, civic-minded, I think. And I guess as I got older, I, I mentioned, you know, we lived in, in the poorest house in a decent neighborhood. So, you know, some of my friends' families, they would fly around in private jets and things like that. And I'm like, you know, I would get a little taste of that. And then they'd get cars. When, when my one buddy turned 16, he had a beautiful sports car for his 16th birthday. And I'm like, well, you know, I didn't get that, but I'm going to go earn it. So I, I found early on that I, I wanted some of the nicer things in life, but I, I you know, wasn't going to ask for them, so I was going to go earn those things. And so I realized that the path to, to that kind of success and to be able to have you know, some things that n not necessarily, I wasn't like just so focused on material things, but it, there were some motivating factors there when I saw others that had things that were given to them, it was sort of a competitive thing that, well, hey, if they've got it, I want it. And I know my dad's not going to just give it to me because he can't. And and even if he could, I don't think he would have because he wanted me to earn things was how he taught me too. But anyway, it was probably in those early teen years that I realized that I was going to be an entrepreneur. So, so yeah, I mean, when through grade school, I had the old, you know, I want to be a fireman kind of mentality. But as I got into high school and college, I was definitely going to be an entrepreneur. That's wonderful uh, to hear you say that. And and obviously, uh, you know, now looking back on your career, you've you've sort of made scores of people, and you never you'll never know how many people you really have affected. Clearly, your leadership style has played a key role to that. Share a little bit with me on, on how you lead and what your key tenets of leadership are. I have, I, I would say this, there are many great executives in the world that are very powerful in their leadership techniques. And I've, I've followed a, quite a few and I've gone to many programs to learn things because I also believe in using mentors and coaches in your life. So I have three or four mentors and coaches in my life right now, some of which I, I pay, you know, uh, for their services and their advice, uh, because I believe you need that. But I, as an entrepreneurial boss, my leadership style was one of, of giving a fair amount of leeway to the people uh, that were involved in, in my company to the point of, you know, focusing them on 
maintaining a, a profitable kind of subsidiary of, of our entity. If, if I had somebody, you know, my, my companies never grew beyond about 500 employees. So I never had tens of thousands of employees where I had to perform ultimate, you know, some big picture leadership kinds of things. Most of my companies were in that 30 to 50 to 100 type uh, employees. And then on, in one occasion, I built to 500 people. And so, you know, we had a fulfillment division and I wanted that to run as its own kind of profit center. And so, we, you know, we, we gave a little bit of free reign to the managers to do what they needed to do to build the business. So while I ruled with a, a firm hand and, and demanded, you know, ultimate respect to my you know, positioning of ownership and or CEO positioning, I also was very lenient in allowing my top people to really have a lot of autonomy in their direction and, and leadership themselves. Part of the, the reason being, as an entrepreneur, I tended to, throughout my entire career, I was always involved in a startup mode. So in startup mode, I was very focused in really developing, getting the business off the ground, which required an extreme amount of travel. I remember the one business we went from zero to 50 million to 100 million to 150 to 300 to 500 million. That happened over about a five year. And I was traveling the world. And so it literally, I was going from the U.S. to England, to Germany, to Holland, then onward to the Far East, and, and then back around. I go around the world every single month. And so when you're traveling and you're building and you're focused in that area, it's very difficult to be on the, on the line back home doing all that day-to-day -day kind of executive management. So I generally allowed a little bit of leniency with the folks that I brought in. And, and I looked for people that were self-starters that I didn't have to lean on too much and that were able to take the ball and run with it. Because keeping in mind, I was a young entrepreneur. When I was doing some of these businesses, I was in my 20s, in my 30s, and didn't have a lot of experience. So I wasn't afraid to hire someone that was 60 or 50 that had a lot of experience. And I was letting them take the ball and run with it and not making them necessarily fall into my own systems and, and desires. So I had a little bit more of a leniency with my people because I needed them to, I, I use the word self-starter. I always like looking for people that I could say, okay, here's your job. We got to go build this division. Like when we got into fulfillment, we had to buy an 80,000 square foot building, start from scratch, hire the people. We had to hire a hundred plus people to run that fulfillment center. But see, that was not even in our home territory. So I didn't have the time, energy, or knowledge of how to do that. So I had to rely on getting the right people in to do the things that they needed to do. And I gave them enough rope to do that. So that was my style, was to bring in the best I could afford, the best I could find, and let them run with it and, and treat them almost as a separate P&L along the way. I appreciate you sharing the, those, uh, those inspiring thoughts. And clearly early on, you mentioned your dad being a mentor and, uh, and the wonderful uh, relationship you had with him and your mom. 
What are those foundational values and morals, Kevin, that uh, you think you brought into your leadership style that you early on picked up from observing from your parents? My parents were, my mother was very religious, number one. She went to church six days a week to the, to the, the week that she passed away and taught me the, the same, same principles and morals. And so I, my father was, was likewise a very uh, giving kind of person. And, and I also had another mentor around this, these early days. This gentleman's name is Zig Ziglar. Zig Ziglar instilled in me a philosophy of you can get everything in life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. So at an early age, I found myself helping other people. And I started 30 plus years ago, something called the Young Entrepreneurs Organization, YEO, which is now, as I got older, we changed it to EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization. And EO has 150 chapters in 150 cities in 50 countries. And it's the largest entrepreneurial organization in the world. And so this was something that for year after year, I spent, this is a nonprofit out of Washington, D.C. that I actually helped fund the beginning of. And it's funny because I'm a hockey fan. And one of the other co-founders was a gentleman by the name of Ted Leonsis. And Ted I saw him last week. He was here in town in Tampa. His cap, his Washington Capitals are in the Stanley Cup right now, hockey team. And so <laughs> Ted was one, one of the co-founders with myself of this organization. And we, we had a mentality of we're young entrepreneurs. We made some mistakes. How can we help others learn from the mistakes we've made? Well, let's form an organization and you can join it and you can become a member. But the members of EO collectively now do $500 billion in sales on a global basis. And we're everywhere from, you know, from India to China to Europe to Germany to, you know, like I said, 50 countries, 150 cities, we have chapters. And so it's an amazing organization. I, I, I go back to the early days of learning from my mom and dad that you've got to help people, support people, give back to the community, to society. And if there's anything that I may have made mistakes on as I've explored my entrepreneurial days and years is that sometimes I've been maybe a little too trusting with some people and allowed things to happen and, and have a, um, you know, just a, a, a time of giving, maybe sometimes letting people get a little bit too far with taking advantage of me. But that, you know, you got to tighten those things up, though. So you got to be careful not to get the wrong people in your life, too. Well, uh, again, it's very uh, wonderful words of advice for uh, young leaders and entrepreneurs. Clearly, um, you're talking about learning from your sometimes your mistakes, and uh, those early learnings are very important. What would you offer up as advice for up-and-coming leaders on things not to do as you develop your leadership capabilities? I like to, to set by example, number one, but I think, I think one of the biggest problems that, that leaders have is, and I've seen this in, in companies that get complacent, is they sometimes they make, somebody comes into a position and their focus is, the, is, is a maintenance of what they've got instead of always looking to understand, you know, maintenance is not, does not create successful business. You need 
growth. And, you know, this is why as public companies go, as, as, as you well know, you know, sometimes it's to the extreme where you live quarter to quarter on a performance basis. But, the you know, the street expects to see growth and profits growing on a regular basis. So I think, you know, some leaders tend to not take enough risk, not do enough testing, challenging new things. And so I, I find this when I'm, you know, kind of presenting new opportunities to people that I talk to in business. If I can show somebody, you know, I remember when we tried to take infomercials into European markets and foreign markets, many of the TV stations, they weren't even interested in discussing these new income opportunities. And then I could even show them where they were currently, they, they were shutting their channels off and going dark at say two o'clock in the morning and coming back on at 6 a.m. And so I would talk to them about running my programs and they had no interest. And then I would even say, well, look, you're dark for, for four hours a night. Let's you know, test it in this downtime where it costs you nothing. And it, we still had a difficulty with some many places that were just had no interest in seeing some extra income that could come from something new and exciting. Now, since those early days, they've now realized, wow, we, you know, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year in these in payments back to the media companies now. And so why wouldn't they be interested? But some managers and some leaders, they, you know, I have a saying, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always gotten. So, you know, it, you sometimes have to uh, think outside the box, take a little bit of risk, take some new opportunities and not be afraid to try some, some new challenges. But I, I always believe as a leader, it's important to be testing new things, new opportunities and, and not to be closed minded. So I think that's probably one of the best uh, things that I can say from my own standpoint that I, I think as a leader, it's important not to close your mind to opportunities and new revenue streams. And also today with technology, you have to be on top of new things and new opportunities that are out there. You're absolutely uh, spot on. And uh, as we segue into the world of technology, since you brought that up, you have been a phenomenal pioneer implementer of uh, using every enablement of technology. So as you know, over the decades, we've seen a huge amount of progress in the use of technology. It's also most recently, uh, the most recent example I can think of is it's disaggregated some labor pools. Uber is a good example. Everybody was worried that transportation would be seriously affected when Uber came on, but people had to retool and rethink how to do other things. What is your view on how society can reinvent itself? Uh, the latest thing is blockchain. I, I noticed you're spending a little time on Pitch Live TV and a few other things uh, using the latest technologies. Love to hear your views on uh, technology being an enabler. Thank you, Sudhir. I think that I think as you look, it's it's funny. You look at Amazon, and Amazon is is now making some profits. And obviously, have, have just you know been crushing it in terms of their strategy and and developing many new profit centers across the board. But I believe seventy percent of their income is actually coming 
from their the tech side of their business, which is you know the the cloud side, the tech support side, and the storage side, etc. So here they are, this big global you know retailer of products, but they also thank goodness for their vision have been very profound to be able to also be generating you know, I think 70% of their profits, give or take, whatever that number is, in the world of technology services. So, you know, look at what happened to Blockbuster Video. You know, they didn't see the handwriting on the wall that people maybe would stop coming into the stores and now, hey, they're going to go to Netflix. It's a technology play that you can send the movies over the internet to people's homes. And so technology has changed many industries and will continue to change industries. Uber is a taxi type company that is huge, but they don't own any taxis. Here again, it's a mobile app, it's a technology, and so technologies are disrupting other industries. And I think that I look at even my own world of infomercials, and I'm in an industry, I'm the, you know, in the as seen on TV industry, right? Well. TV viewership is down by 50% over the last 10 years. What, you know, my philosophy is, what do you have to do? You have to follow the eyeballs because technology changes. Where are they going? They've gone to YouTube. They've gone to Facebook. They've gone to Instagram. They've gone to Netflix. So as technology comes out and it changes your industry, there's people in my industries that are still sitting back saying, wow, I'm making less money, what's happening, right? Whereas I've, you know, years ago moved on and said, I need to move, you know, to where the eyeballs are going and beyond. So now you mentioned the word blockchain. Blockchain is certainly going to be changing many industries. I'm in the fulfillment industry. I'm in the production. We produce infomercials. We fulfill products. So I'm in fulfillment. I'm in production. I'm in media. I'm in talent procurement. And now blockchain is being introduced to all of these industries. You know, the billions of dollars in products that I have imported and fulfilled, there's now going to be blockchain technology that will support and track all of that in order to tighten up any losses that might have have been sifting through the cracks there. So I'm tuning in to the world of blockchain in credit card processing, in fulfillment, and talent procurement. So I've got some interests in a company called ShipChain, where we took the head of a former head of DHL, moved him in to, to start up a company called ShipChain, which is using blockchain for fulfillment. And we're staying in neck and neck with this world, as you mentioned, you know, blockchain, and especially getting very serious into a lot of the financial companies. And I spoke recently at a blockchain event. Myself and Damon John were keynote speakers at an event recently, and thousands of people came, but from many big companies, from many of the, the banks, many of the investment houses, etc. So this is something that is at the beginning phases of many industries and definitely worth many, many people's attention to see where it's going. And, I, and I'm sure you've tuned into it also. And I'm glad to, to hear us talking about it a little bit because I just feel I don't know en en enough. I'm not like giving any advice here. I'm just saying it's definitely an industry 
to be tuned into because there's major happenings going on as we speak. You're, uh, you're absolutely right, Kevin. It is going to disrupt a lot of business models, traditional ones, especially in the financial sector and many other sectors. I completely agree with you. Do you see other technologies? Of course, you know, there's drones and uh, analytics are playing a very big role, as you know, in everything. And the profiling of, you know, our buying habits and everything we do, et cetera, with the use of technology. Yeah. What are some of the other futures that you see that, you know, you sometimes think, I've got to leverage this or it's going to keep me up uh, awake at night? Good question. Just recently, I got involved. We're starting some medical and health care situations and artificial intelligence. AI is, is a big new industry. Actually, a, a group of radiologists, one a former professor of UCLA and another group of radiologists out in the West Coast. It, it might be a, a very interesting business situation, but they're developing you know, some blockchain and AI technologies in the radiology arena. And that looks to be very, very exciting. You know, I think AI is certainly, you know, one of the things you mentioned drones and some of the things happening there, analytics. But I certainly uh, I believe AI is going to be a big industry for everybody. Early stages of development at this point. I'm sure you've tuned into it a little bit and it never ceases to amaze me some of the opportunities that are out there. So, you know, I'm a kind of a B to C, you know, business to the consumer, direct to the consumer kind of person and business owner, entrepreneur. But when I see opportunities where radiology is being impacted by AI, I think here's some great opportunities for the masses. And so this is one of the things we just recently tuned into. So that's definitely an arena that I think many people will be um, looking to capitalize on in the very near future. I absolutely agree with you. And I think it's also going to sort of affect how we use technology to leverage uh, leadership and bring teams together, etc. So I had one question for you. You've had a huge privilege to meet many people, to be with many around the world. When you meet someone what is the one thing you hope to instill or leave them with? Oh, good question. I think when I when I meet someone, what I like to leave them with is we've had, you know, just a chance to say hello. But if there's ever a time when they think that I might be helpful in furthering something that they're involved with, that I, I, I leave the door open to having a, a way to to help them in that regard. It, you know, because I, I do a lot of speaking. I go around the world. There's only so many hours in a day. It, you know, to a fault, it's one of the things that my wife will say to me, you know, you're, you're helping this person, you're helping that person, you're helping this person, but you're, there's no compensation, right? And I, and I say, well, some, there, there are certain percentages of things that I do that I, I get compensated for. And then sometimes there's a certain percentage of things you do that, because you, you, you feel like you've, you've got to help some, some people. And so, you know, I, I, I try to instill, and, and, and even if it's in my case, in many cases, I just try to open the Rolodex even so that, okay, this isn't something I can directly help you with, but here's the right kind of connection for you. So, you know, I think that's 
but that what, what I try to do is leave somebody with that warm and fuzzy that if if there's ever anything that I can help them with, feel free to come back because it, whether it be myself personally or someone in my Rolodex, what, what could be so bad to be able to steer people in the right direction where they can get help? You clearly are a giver and it's very evident in the wonderful success that you've uh, seen, not just for yourself, but how you've made many people successful around you. Thank you. Before we close this show, I have one last question for you, Kevin. You've seen a lot of life from early on of childhood to, to where you've tasted major elements of success, sometimes failure, etc. What is the epitaph you would want people to remember you by? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that, that's, a, that's a good one. Well, we have a, uh, you, just, you hit me there and I'll give you the, I'll give you one that ties right in to the industry that I'm in. Uh, a, a little story behind it. We were selling product once and we were getting a lot of phone calls, but only half the people were ordering. And Zig Ziglar had a philosophy as my mentor. He said, Kevin, he said, if the price is high and the value proposition is below the price, you're not going to make the sale. So we said, okay, so we've got this price. Now, how do you raise the value prop? Give them more, more of something. So we said, so here it is. We're selling this product. It's 1995, but wait, there's more. If you order now, you'll get six free steak knives and a paring knife and a bread knife, right? So, so that's been is something in my industry for many, many years. I think I would put on my, my epitaph on my, on, on my, gravestone would be but wait i know there's more <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one let's hope right but wait i know there's more coming up ties right into my uh giving more merchandise away to create a more a higher value proposition for the consumer of course in life and on death i hope there's more and i say but wait i know there's more I, I hope that's a good one. <laughs> it's, it's an absolutely good one, and it's a wonderful philosophy to live life by. It looks like you enjoy every moment of it, and um, you know you you've imparted some incredible wisdom and insights. Uh, just hearing you talk is very inspiring to me, and I hope it'll be a, a, of great inspiration to our audience. Thank you. So, Kevin, I'm very grateful for you to having uh, joined me on the show. Thank you. Final thoughts from your guide for cracking the code, Sudhir Ispahani. I think, first of all, it was very insightful and fascinating to hear Kevin. You know, of course, uh, we've seen him in a different light on television, always uh, doing his, and wait, there's more. How he came up with that. Yeah. It, it was it was a problem. Yeah. Half the people were who were calling up ended up not buying. Exactly, and that's what he talks about in this interview, right? And, uh, you know, why it's important to have great mentors, why curiosity always drove him to always ask questions, saying there's got to be something more than what you're telling me. And just using what's between his ears, his brain and thinking, came up with that strategy of give the customer more than they thought they were, they were going to get for the price. And now everybody does it, and this is the guy who invented it. So this was a fascinating interview that you did with Kevin. I really liked his thoughts around leadership. 
couple of key things, Alan, that I picked up from it was, you know, curiosity is something we should all strive to continue to use on a daily basis. I read a couple of books recently. A good friend of mine uh, offered up one was called A Curious Mind. A fascinating book again, very similar along the lines of what Kevin has done. The other thing Kevin talks about is being open-minded, you know, in in knowing where your weaknesses are as a leader. You know, uh, his, uh, his comment about leadership is sometimes leaders tend to just uh, sit still and then they just want to ride their successes. And uh, when you have great successes as a leader, you should be more energized to learn and learn not just from your successes but also your failures, right? And I love the, uh, the but let's wait, there's more. And uh, Well, you know who stole that or borrowed it? Steve Jobs, when he always would do the big Apple presentations, there was always that one more thing that he would show. Yeah. And I have to think that that is an echo of what Kevin Harrington b- brought us when he was selling Jinsu knives. He tells the story beautifully of how he really had a problem with selling one of the products. And uh, talked to his mentor again, which he really talks all along in the show that the mentors are really important part of your life if you want to do anything successful. That's one of the lessons that I get out of all of these consistently. Everybody had a mentor that put them on the path that took them to success. Alan, as you know, I always end the show with saying, you know, what do you want to be remembered by? What is your epitaph going to look like? And, you know, of course, Kevin uh, tells us about this uh, this. Uh, interaction he had with Zig, his mentor, Zig Ziglar. And, uh, you know, of course, the thing he really wants to be remembered by, even on his gravestone, is to say, but wait, there's more. 